Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Sheila, how are you? Hi, I am good, thank you, Haida. Um, I love the sort of picture behind you. You've got this sort of half-naked woman um, in some sort of swimming gear. What's that about? So at the top, it actually says, um, I go into the water, and then I think it's to lose my mind and find my soul. Does it say that? <laughs> I don't know. I can't read it because I, I think it's back uh, to front. Yeah. Into the water I go to lose my mind and find my soul. Um, so I'm a big open water swimming fan. Um, I got into it. Uh, well, I actually got into it. Someone asked me this the other day. The first time I went into a quarry in, in my wetsuit in 2012. And I remember sitting there for about 20 minutes before I plucked up the courage to actually get in the water um and then gradually one thing led to another and the wetsuit came off uh end of 2018 I think so I think I'm in my fourth season of winter swimming so no wetsuit um and dabbling with getting rid of the neoprene gloves and boots but it is quite stabby um so they're a little bit of a comfort blanket but um yes that's my thing and someone shared an article with me yesterday which talks about how dopamine gets raised with cold water immersion. But I think it's below 11 degrees and goes up by 250%, matching that that you get with high-class drugs, um, but without the afterdrop. 250 as in 250? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's pretty, It's for me, I call it a reset button. It just... Wow. You could go down to the beach worrying about something, go into the water and you come out and you cannot even remember what it was you were, you know, what was on your mind. Um, it's just such a, because your whole body's just got to stop and go, oh, what is going on right now? What are you doing? Um, and yeah, then of course, when you come out, it's busy keep trying to get you warm again. Um, so, you know, I, I know it's become really popular, particularly through lockdown. Um and um, there are obviously dangers associated with it. Uh, it's all about acclimatization. But yes, so what, 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 what was the first time like? Could, could you sort of tell us about that? And, you know, because I'm sure there's a few listeners out there who are thinking, hmm. Yeah. Maybe for so, me. And, and this is the thing, actually, because when I first moved down to Dorset, which was five years ago, I saw people doing it and thought, that'd be so cool to be like one of those people um, that I, you know, I don't think I, I, I dare. And then I, you know, found a couple of groups that I was swimming with in my wetsuit. Um, and someone just said to me, well, why don't you do a swim in your wetsuit? And then when you're finished, take the wetsuit off and just, you know, go in because you're all, you know, your body's already used to it. Your hands and, and, and feet are, are, are used to it. Um, and so that's what I did. And it was like, oh, that's not as cold as I thought it was. So uh, there's that slight acclimatization. Um, and it kind of just carried on from there. And then I got to the point where I realized 
it was actually quite a faff to put a wetsuit on. And then one day I was so cold, I was struggling to get out of my wetsuit and I like sort of dislocated my thumb because it all went all the way back. And because my hands were so cold, I didn't even realise I'd done it. And it was only as I started to warm up that I thought, oh, that thumb really hurts actually. And I still get a bit of pain from it. And so I think that just, it put me off and I thought, well, I'm not going to bother with the wetsuit anymore. Um, and yeah, just carried on. And obviously I don't go in, in the winter, I manage about 10 minutes, but um, it's it's quite stabby. I call it stabby. Like that's like people, people, a lot of people measure the temperature on their watch and I just like, it's either cold, stabby or very stabby. Um, that's how I measure it. Wow, wow. And and the first time you went in with your wetsuit, what was what was that like? So the first time I went in with the wetsuit, I don't I remember being just more scared about getting into this quarry because it was quite dark and black. And I sort of I think my fear was what is underneath the water, even though rationally I knew it couldn't yeah, be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one I remember once I was in feeling like, oh, this is amazing because there's something about when you're in the water, it's you're just completely held by nature. You can't get any closer to nature but when that water is all around you. And, and when like, you come out and you, as your body, you spend a while sort of jumping about, feeling like, am I ever gonna get warm again? And there's this sort of swimmer's dance that everyone does. Um, and then when that warmth starts to come through, um, it, you really get that, oh, that was amazing, that was amazing, that was amazing. Um, it doesn't make it any easier the next time you go in, um, but you do hang on to that when you're walking in the water because you know how amazing it's gonna feel afterwards. Um, it is something that you've just got to, uh, you've got to overcome the thought that, so there's a, the, the fact is the water is cold and that's not gonna change. The thought is, it's too cold for me to go in. That is just a, a thought that's in our imagination. And when I talk about taking a pair of scissors to that thought, you cut the thought away. So it's cold, I'm going to go in anyway, like that, the action. And then you kind of move over it. Now, I mean, it sounds simple, it's a, a practice, isn't it? Um, but there is something about recognizing what the thought is and the fact that that's not actually true. Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, whenever I get into the water, I always think of Jaws. I don't know why it's just yeah. sort of been been ingrained into me from from multiple, uh, uh, you know, watching it on many times, you know, many times. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And as you said, you've just got to like overcome that thought. I mean, it's totally irrational, but it's always there. Um, yeah. And I went one time into the uh, uh, open waters with a with a wetsuit. And yeah, it was quite, it was, yeah, it was quite horrifying, actually. <laughs> yeah. I think I it like, also depends on whether, whether you can actually see, because obviously in the UK, the seas aren't as clear as many other places. And it makes quite a big difference if you can see the bottom when you're swimming. If it's just murky, you, you really literally don't know what's down there. And there's no, no difference to when it's clear. But in your head, there's some big monster that's going to come and like. Bite yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. Yours. Yeah, I mean, I felt some 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 sort of slimy stuff underneath me, occasionally, um, and the rest was just sort of duck poo everywhere. Oh, and, you know, <laughs> where were you swimming? <laughs> well, I'm not going to say where because it's, it's not going to sound very good for them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was sort of all, all kinds of weird things, and you know, you swallow quite a bit of it. I was quite surprised yeah. how much you swallow. Yeah, and uh, to be fair, talking about like where did you swim? My first um, event was the 
world triathlon I'm not, it just happened to be that well I wasn't competing as a world athlete but um and it was in Hyde Park so the swim was in the serpentine um so yeah there are places like nicer places to that well yeah was, you couldn't see anything yeah. and and when you're doing the start line of a triathlon you're usually getting bashed over the head by someone's arm and then kicked by someone's foot so it's, um there are much more pleasant quieter more serene places to go i have since learned <laughs> Where, where's the sort of you know the best places you've ever swam out in the you know that really I think, talks to um, you yeah so in um abroad i can't remember the name of the island now but um I was lucky enough to stay on a friend's boat um, and we were just, we, there was one island, I cannot remember the name of it, but it was, it was um, pretty much in, uninhabited. And so I was able to swim from the boat to the shore and there's just no one there. And it's the first time I've ever really experienced that term, the silence was deafening because there was just no sound. Um, and then a few birds and things. Um, but then in the UK, in the Lake District, um, just around the back of Scarfell, which is the highest UK peak, there's a lake called Sprinkling Tarn. And so it's the highest open water place that you can swim. And when I went up there, I was the only one in this lake creating these ripples that were going. And it, yeah, that was pretty, pretty cold, um, but it's pretty special to be because you can only get up there by hiking up there. Um, so pretty special place that yeah wow wow and and you know there's there's this kind of sort of notion of of soul and sort of quietness and I guess that does it for you yeah because you can't think about anything else when your body's immersed in that cold water because it, it is cold and you're you know you're forced to look at your immediate surroundings so you're in that lake looking up at Scarfell and it just reminds you of the beauty of the world and how we're such a small, insignificant part in it, really. So it it just brings, it just really grounds you um, or floats you, say. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, sort of flo floating existence. And, you know, I mean, as you said, sort of let, letting nature support you. Yeah, yeah. And every single swim is different, particularly when you're swimming in the sea. The, you know, the wind direction changes, the tide's changing. Um, the it's a bit stormy at the moment, so the seaweed's all just like held in the in the water, and it's all swishing around. And so, no two swims are ever the same. And I think that's part of the appeal as well. Um, from a safety perspective, you have to you know be aware of all those different things, but also from a experience, yeah, it just brings something different every time. And and sort of any any horror stories, any. Uh horrible moments you'd like to share with the audience today <laughs> I don't want to put anyone off either um <laughs> it's all about getting people into the water um I don't I don't think no one's drowned in front of you no or anything in front like of that. Me. Yeah. um there was one incident where sometimes you feel because you're constantly thinking is there something underneath me you almost start to hallucinate sometimes oh. and there was once when I was swimming along and you know I'm breathing both sides and I took a uh, looked to the one side and I thought I saw uh like a dead shark like upside down mm. on the, the base of the um bed seabed and it was only down at Camford Cliffs um near me down in Poole and so I thought you must have been like hallucinating that's that's absolutely ridiculous I mean they weren't huge probably like half my size um and then 
I got to the swim club the next day and, and, and said, oh, I was swimming yesterday. I'm sure I was hallucinating because I thought I saw these two um, dead sharks. And she went, oh, no, no, someone else has reported that in, in the group, said that there were, there were some dead sharks up at Camford Cliffs. And that was a bit of a oh, moment because they weren't huge, but they were sharks. Um, and so, yeah, that's probably the only um, unusual story. Um, and, and and obviously you're 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 wrestling with your mind and and sort of that kind of yeah. stuff. How 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 did you get over it? Yeah, well, I just swam as fast as I could <laughs> um, because and I sort of tried to say to myself, "That's not true. That's not true." Because yeah, wow. um, otherwise, you know, you might freak yourself out of the water and never get back in again. Um, because the plus side of that that wildlife, and I'm a bit annoyed that I ha this hasn't happened to me yet, but there have been sightings of dolphins down at pool and in the harbour um and so you can hallucinate in the other way and see ripples of waves and think they're dolphins um but i haven't seen any yet but they are there to be spotted wow wow so and and what made you go to dorset i mean what, did, did something happen that you thought to yourself i've had enough of this i'm i'm getting out yeah that um, pretty much is about the sum of it so um in fact, almost a year, uh, no, almost a year, almost five years today, so the 17th of May, um, was the day that I was sitting in, an, in, the, in a meeting with my manager and I was staring out the window thinking, I don't think I really want to do this anymore. Um, but I'd said it out loud and then he said, are you resigning? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and I'd, I had thought about it, but I hadn't like planned that particular like conversation. And so I walked out of the meeting because uh, uh, he said, are you resigning? And I'm like, so, yeah, uh, walked out of the meeting and I was like, what have you done? And then the other half of me was this helium balloon going, woohoo, you did it. I mean, you're free now. Um, and that was on the back of, it's, I mean, you can give it whatever label you like, stress, burnout, depression. Um, I was not in a very good place um, and I had a chunk of time out of work to you know, work out what I really did want to do. And this was on the back of getting back into the work and thinking this, this just isn't working for me. Um, and so so I you know, finished, finished up that um, role and then I literally had no plan B. So I what found role myself... Was it? Um, so I was a learning, I think I was a learning consultant, I think that was my title, um, how quick you forget. Um, so I was managing a team of consultants who were designing training material for organisations when they were changing their computer software or implementing it. Um, and I would do change and like training. And then prior to that, I was sort of HR generalist at um, Craft Foods when Craft brought out Cadbury, so that whole huge merger. Um, and yeah, so I found myself a coach to figure out what I really did want to do. And um, over the course of that thought, I don't think I'm the only person that kind of gets to a point in their life and thinks, what, what, what am I doing? Like, is, is this it? Um, and that there were probably things that might have suited me better to support me in finding a way to, to enjoy that role better or, um, you know different support mechanics possibly and I was so I was thinking about I, I just want to I don't want other people in the situation that I was in what can I do and having had counselling and coaching I was like you know what coaching is a, a real way for people to find out for themselves what they really want um so I what, you know I mean what what made you go to see a coach or a counsellor or um because I just thought I just don't I don't know what to do and I don't know where yeah. to start in yeah. thinking about it um, 
and so I mean the counseling was when I was off sick from work Um, and that was more about getting me like processing often there's loads of stuff like I call it rocks in your rucksack there's loads of rocks in your rucksack you walk around it's really really heavy a lot of it doesn't serve you and that counseling was right let's get these out and let's like sort them all out and that can happen in coaching as well but it sort of depends how heavy and gnarly and knotty those rocks are as to whether you need to could it kind of go down the psychotherapy coach counseling route or whether the coach you know coaching can like work through them um and so in working with the coach I got such a great sense of like control and thought if if I'm gonna make change then I'm gonna I'm gonna go big <laughs> so as uh, so I started training up to be a coach and in, in amongst all of that I thought Oh, I want to live by the seaside, actually. So I was living in Warwick, just outside Birmingham, probably the most landlocked that you can get. And uh, I'm going to go down and live by the seaside. And so just up sticks. And because I think that was one of my principles that I want to do work where I can work from anywhere. Um, And I often meet my clients on the beach, walking, talking and all that open space where we can do some amazing thinking is working for me. And it's working for the people that you know want to do something different with their lives or want to get a better balance so that was a long answer to your question (laughs) yeah and and I mean it's quite interesting how coaching can be sort of many hats really and and um which to a certain extent does give it a bad name because it you know it's not um the route is not very prescribed you know it could sort of be anywhere and sort of at any time um how, how, how long were you in the HR industry for? I was thinking about this earlier. So I I joined in t- 2009. So, um, and I still do. Um, so I'm still a member of the CIPD and I still I'm a volunteer on the local committee. I was running a session this morning. I have like a special interest for um, coaching. But in terms of, you know, employed HR roles, you know, good 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, has, has HR changed over the years? And, and you know, if, if so, what's your view on it? So I'm not, I'm probably not as close to be able to answer that. Mm. I think I remember really clearly when I took this comment into HR to start with um, and someone saying to me, oh, you're joining the secret police. And I was like, what? I don't understand what, I don't understand what you, what you mean. Well, obviously I do now. Um, and um, yeah, it had that in some places they they still do have that reputation but if you look in you know forward thinking companies you see that HR are actually like supporting people in the organization to support you know it's like line managers to support their teams so they're supporting them with you know building coaching skills and um, mental health awareness and, and things like that so um, I think HR sometimes does get this reputation that um like oh well they're going to find me someone to do that job um well actually if you want someone in your team you know the sort of person that you want to do that and HR might support you in terms of like where you need to go to find that person what sort of questions to ask an interview and like so they're facilitating it rather than doing it um and it's as far as I'm aware that is where HR is is moving but it's it's uh, you know it's a big ship to steer I guess um, I feel like I'm not, like I say, not completely qualified because I'm sort of very much on the peripherals of 
like central HR, if you like. I mean, have, have you ever thought of sort of going back and, and you know, creating change within, uh, you know, the core HR movements? Um, probably not because I love what I'm doing so much now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I went into coaching, it was about helping sort of individuals. And I remember being really anti, I don't want to do any work with any other corporates or organizations. I just want to work with individuals. Um, and as I've moved on and done more training and done more work and people, then people have invited me into their organizations, it kind of overcame that fear. And now I quite enjoy working with um, teams in organizations. And I've also expanded my like coaching work. So I now am a coach supervisor. So I supervise the work of other coaches and a mentor coach. So I observe others coaching and then we you know, discuss how we might be able to sharpen their skills there. So I've expanded within the coaching space, which I think is giving me the challenge that that I need um, in terms of, you know, driving me. Uh, who, who's your who, who's your favourite coach? Who's it like for your your favourite popular coach that that many people have have heard about? So, um, or oh, that doesn't exist. Maybe it's an yeah. Well, no, no. I think so. My favourite coach um, is Michael Bungay Stania. He set up a company called The Box of Crayons. Um, he's got a book called The Coaching Habit, which is a book of seven questions where he believes people can coach in 10 minutes so it's designed for you know managers who want to use coaching to support their teams and then he also brought out a book called the advice trap because the biggest thing you have to overcome with coaching is giving out advice because as humans we're all very willing to you know tell people what we did and how we would do it and actually that won't work in everyone's world and that's the the example that I use is when people say you know I I really need something to switch off from work and um I say well um I could tell you to go and jump in the sea in the middle of winter because you know that'll give you a reset that works for me though it probably won't work for a whole chunk of other people and so when I say that to people they get it they're like yeah no that really wouldn't work for me so what would work and then almost instantly they come up with their own ideas so that advice trap book is really good um and through um lockdown he had a podcast called we will get through this and he talked to all sorts of specialists about um resilience and different things and there were some great he had some great speakers on there um i think he's just a great he's very down to earth and he's just got some great ideas about how we can just keep it quite simple um so i think yeah, I would say he's probably the one that stands out. I mean, doctors have this kind of, um, uh, they don't like the word resilience because it means that, um, you know, it's not the system's fault, it's their fault, um, you know, essentially. How, yeah. how, I mean, how would you counteract that, that, that sort of notion and that idea? Yeah, and I th- so I think um, that resilience has become this buzzword And when you really dig into it, so I'm doing some research at the moment um, and the the working title is how, which elements of resilience and well-being are impacted by formal workplace coaching. And in order to do that research, I need to have a definition for resilience and for well-being so we know what we're working with. And there are no universally agreed definitions. And there's one key researcher called um, Bonanno 
who talks about you can't really measure resilience until someone has faced a traumatic event because resilience is how quickly we bounce back from something so how do we know how quickly we may or may not bounce back from something until we actually have an event and I don't particularly want my research to to be around right I need to find some people who are going to have a traumatic event um so that and then like measure it afterwards and I think yes I, I hear that piece about it's not like is it the system or is it me so it's about being resilient to the system um and then because one key thing about resilience is our sense of control and where people have an internal locus of control they're more likely to be more resilient than those who have an external locus of control so what i mean by that is an external locus of control is I'm driving along and there's a truck coming towards me and I can't do anything about the fact that, that truck is coming towards me. An internal locus of control says there's a truck coming towards me. I could turn left, that might put me in the ditch. I could turn right, that might put me in the central reservation. I could slam my brakes on. So it's about recognizing this is how I can respond to what's happening in front of me. So that's where the resilience is not about just standing firm and going, oh, I'm going to put up with this. It's about choosing how we work our way around that. And another quote that I think is brilliant from you might have come across but the book, A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. And so he says in that between any stimulus and response is space. And in that space is our um, opportunity to choose. Um, and that's where we get freedom and growth. So the more we grow that space to give ourselves some time to make the choices is where we've got the opportunity to choose how we respond um, to things. So I think that's what I, my thinking is around that, but it's still emerging and I'm always, always happy to, you know, talk to more people about that. And particularly because I've got this huge research project where I need 60 coaches to um, enlist clients so that we can actually look at, because I, I think that resilience and well-being, and I've broken that down into component parts, is, is like a, a byproduct of coaching. So it happens even if you're not talking about things. And it's come from clients that I've been working with at the end of their coaching sessions, the programme, they mark themselves in these elements of well-being. And things like sleep, they were saying sleep was improving and activity was improving. We've never had a conversation about sleep, never had a conversation about activity. And I think it comes from the activity, probably a sense of control. OK, I want to do this activity. I'm going to choose to make this time for it. And sleep, uh, I think we process things overnight when we think, you know, we process challenges that the old phrase sleep on it. Um, if we're processing that stuff in a coaching conversation, in our conscious waking hours, does that take it off the brain's load? And so when we sleep, we're not working through that as well. So we sleep a bit better. Um, so these are the things that I'm finding like really fascinating. And it's other coaches are coming forward and think, yeah, that is really fascinating. And, you know, how do we get to the bottom of that and figure that out? So I'm quite excited by what we might be able to find there because we could find ourselves in a position where we can say coaching could be a strategy for well-being. You know, ne never mind sort of spas and smoothies and, and offering things that we don't know that people need. 
give them the, the space to think what they actually want and then it, it boosts on its own um so yeah yeah i mean I, yeah i mean i agree with you you know having these sort of sort of essentially me times you know to really have that 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 time and that um well essentially space to work through all these um difficult ideas essentially mm, yeah yeah um I think we need to do this again because I need to sort out my Zoom so that uh, we can have a longer conversation because <laughs> it's yeah. about because it's about to close in about uh, a minute's time. We don't want to um, end mid-sentence. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, having more time to talk and and um, to work through these uh, interesting and uh, challenging ideas. And I think you know, if you don't have time to talk about these challenging ideas, then you're definitely going to burn out and get stressed. Yeah, yeah. And they ruminate. And I say, yeah. um, jive with your joy more than you ruminate on your rubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really great. Um, how, how, how can people get, get hold of you and, and, and uh, help you with your um, uh, project, your research, uh, your coaching project? Yeah, so if you look me up, bluegreencoaching.com, and there's under the business section, there's a page about the research um but my email address is there my phone number you can book in my diary and we can have a conversation and linkedin is the other place i'm quite active there so yeah please get in touch i'm always up for talking more about all of this good stuff thank you sheila it's been great thank you Heider.